Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday the 7th of April. I'm Tom Tilley and today we brief you on why our vaccine rollout is so far behind. The ambition for 4 million doses on that timeline was always incredibly optimistic. First, Annika Smethurst joins us as we hit the big stories of the day. Australians are rushing to buy tickets to New Zealand. I can confirm that quarantine-free travel between New Zealand and Australia will commence in just under two weeks' time. That was New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern yesterday announcing the long-awaited travel bubble between Australia and New Zealand will start Monday week. Yeah, very exciting news. Just in time for ski season. (laughs) Um, We've been talking about this for about a year, haven't we, Annika? Yeah, false start after false start, but it looks like it's finally happening. Yeah, so Qantas uh, have seen a massive surge in people buying tickets for the Qantas flights and Jetstar flights. Both of those airlines will start running 100 flights a week starting April 19, but Virgin says it won't start flying until October. Hotels in New Zealand have also had one of their busiest days for bookings. Miss Ardern also used yesterday's announcements to warn travellers that there might be some last-minute changes. Those undertaking travel on either side of the ditch will do so under the guidance of Flyer Beware. Yeah, so I guess you've got to keep your excitement in check with all that uncertainty that could arise. Um, But I was quite impressed, Annika, to see that when they made this announcement, obviously they'd foreshadowed it for some time, and they clearly prepared this traffic light system so that at least... Um, when uncertainty arises, you had a framework to go by. Oh, this makes me so frustrated that this hasn't happened for ages. Living in Canberra for so long when there was no COVID cases, they used to have direct flights to New Zealand and I never Mm. understood why we couldn't just keep flying. But yeah, I think that's right, Tom. They're not going to just have a nationwide shutdown if there's a few cases somewhere. So fingers crossed in our home states, there's no more COVID outbreaks. Yeah, and friends of mine are already uh, organising some big ski parties in Queenstown. So there's a lot of excitement there. And a lot of people with family in New Zealand and Australia as well. I did I did hear commentary from both sides of the ditch yesterday, though, Annika, that Aussies in New Zealand and New Zealanders in Australia um, are pretty tight when it comes to their spending. Yeah, we heard a similar thing when we were up in far north Queensland recently. Basically, Aussies don't put out as much money uh, when they're on holidays as perhaps some more lucrative tourists. But look, it's something. The industry's really struggling and... They've got to get something into these uh, resorts. You know, people, they need the money. So let's all go to New Zealand. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. The main reason why we don't spend much money there and vice versa is that we have family and don't spend up big on accommodation. And people coming from Europe or America are are doing that big once-in-a-lifetime trip potentially. The European Union has rejected Australia's claim it blocked shipments of more than 3 million COVID vaccines. Yeah, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison yesterday blamed supply from Europe as the biggest issue plaguing our vaccine rollout. The challenges Australia has had has been a supply problem. There was over 3 million doses from overseas that were contracted that never came. Emergency Management Minister David Littleproud was also out directing blame at the EU. We were three million short by the EU. They cut us short. So the EU has hit back overnight. Uh, They've said that the only request for vaccines that they've blocked so far out of the almost 500 they've received since January was a shipment of 250,000 doses, not three million doses. The EU Commission also said in a press release that from January 30 to March 24, the EU has exported one million doses to Australia. What do you make of this development, Annika, that the, the EU have issued a statement overnight contradicting the Prime Minister? 
Oh, look, it's hard to deny that they haven't blocked anything. They have blocked some of our vaccines. It comes down to how many they say they have blocked. Perhaps there's more that haven't even made their way to the docks yet. But Australia's vaccine problem seems to be, uh, you know, vast. We, we're not making enough here ourselves. So, of course, we're relying on getting supply from overseas. And if there's any issues in getting them over here, that's, of course, going to hold us up. So you can understand the frustration from the government. I think any attempt to block vaccines is pretty rough. Having said that, you can understand the issue that Europe are facing compared to us, Tom. You know, they're, yeah. they're really in this terrible situation. They've still got COVID in the community. They're having lockdowns. We're not quite at that level. So you can see the incentive to perhaps keep a lot of that for themselves. Yeah, it is a massive discrepancy in this war of words, though. Um, 250,000 is what they're saying, and our government's saying 3 million. Um, of, of course, that's put the focus on how we're going producing it here with our CSL plant in Melbourne. We had been aiming to get to 1 million AstraZeneca vaccines a week. Um, yesterday, uh, CSL acknowledged on the ABC, that they're way off that target, that they're only producing a few hundred thousand doses a week. So still so much work to do to get up to speed on our local production as well. So as you point out, many problems with our vaccine rollout, and that will be um, discussed in a lot more detail in our briefing topic in just a moment. And former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has been dumped from a job a week after it was announced. He was appointed chair of the New South Wales Net Zero Emissions and Clean Energy Board by New South Wales Environment Minister Matt Keane. But yesterday, Keane backflipped. Turnbull has blamed the media. I was hoping that the government would um, not be bullied by the you know, campaign in the News Corp media. But as is often the case, they found they couldn't take it. It was later revealed Turnbull had written to the state government lobbying to stop a coal mine expansion near his own property in the Hunter Valley. And also that combined with other anti-coal statements is what got the coalition government worried in New South Wales. Um, The former PM has made a lot of coalition MPs nervous that he'll help them lose the upcoming Hunter by-election. That's obviously a massive coal mining area with lots of jobs on the line. And that by-election has come about because of this Nationals MP who's facing rape allegations had to stand down. So it's a, it's a real mess, isn't it, Annika? Yeah, Matt Keane, who is in the same faction as Mr Turnbull, released a statement yesterday saying Turnbull could distract from the board's goal of creating jobs in low-carbon industries. But yeah, as you say, Tom, I think it just comes down to they need to win that election. Yeah, I wonder if that by-election wasn't happening, whether this would have played out the same way. Um, there's obviously a, a lot of people in the coalition who don't like Malcolm Turnbull because he's so often out in the media criticising the coalition. He's particularly strong on this issue of moving towards net zero. The interesting backstory here was that the the whole cabinet in New South Wales actually signed off on this and lots of them are coming out now saying, oh, that was a mistake. And another interesting thing on Turnbull, he also spoke out about the whole Christine Holgate Australia Post saga yesterday. He said that her sacking was partly motivated by sexism. The former CEO of Australia Post has come out, um, finally broken her silence on her sacking last October. She's accused the chairman of Australia Post at the time of lying. She says she never agreed to stand down, even though he was saying that she had and that she's had to seek mental health care and medication as a result of distress. And Victoria Police has won the right to disconnect. Officers complained that they were being contacted outside work hours via emails, text, messages and phone calls. So their union took the right to disconnect 
to the negotiating table and won. Yeah, this could, um, I guess, apply to a lot of people who feel that they're having to work, you know, much longer than their prescribed hours. Um, In this case, managers will no longer be able to contact police outside of work hours unless it's an emergency or to check on their welfare. The right to disconnect was even written into the latest enterprise bargaining agreement struck between Victoria Police and serving officers. Fingers crossed that makes its way into other industries, Tom. It's had a massive impact on people's work lives and I guess being able to switch off. And the family and friends of disgraced financial advisor Melissa Caddick gathered to farewell her yesterday cremating her foot. The 49-year-old, accused of swindling tens of millions of dollars from investors, went missing on November 12th last year. Yeah, and then campers last month found a running shoe containing human remains at Bordner Beach on the New South Wales south coast, and DNA tests confirmed that the remains were from Miss Caddick. So just another bizarre development in a very bizarre story. All right, it's time to talk vaccine rollout. So what the hell is going on with Australia's vaccine rollout? That is the focus of today's briefing. Let's take you back to that initial promise. We remain on track for the first doses of uh, all of the vaccines by the end of October. So that was Scott Morrison speaking last month. As well as that October end date, he also set a short-term goal. And we hoped by the end of February, end of March, I should say, to have reached some 4 million uh, population. So last week we reached the end of March and we'd vaccinated not 4 million people, but 600,000 people. So we were 15% of the way to that target. Now that timeline's been pushed back to the end of April, but we're not on track for that either. For an international comparison, the US has administered more than 100 million doses. We've done fewer than 1 million. And in Israel, where they're really surging ahead, they've vaccinated more than 50% of their population. We're closer to 3%. Last week, the disappointment over the vaccine rollout timeline turned into a war of words between the federal and state governments. Here's Federal Cabinet Minister David Littleproud putting the boots in. We're going to help the states, but they've got to admit they've got a problem because they've done three-fifths of bugger all. uh, And they are holding this nation back. So that was clearly a, a very inflammatory statement And ironically, it was actually the federal government who'd only hit one-fifth of their targets. So it wasn't a great choice of words by David Littleproud. No, and that led to a very angry response from the states, including this one from the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard. I really find this very offensive. I mean, this is the first time you'll find that I've said anything negative publicly in 15 months, but I'm angry. So what is really going on here? Why are we so behind on our vaccine rollout? Uh, Paul Cross Uh, has been following this closely. He runs three online trade magazines focusing on the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, They're called Pharma Dispatch, Biotech Dispatch and Health Dispatch. And previously, he's worked with two federal government health ministers. Paul, thanks for joining us. Just how bad is our rollout looking? Well, I can start by saying that I'm surprised that anyone is surprised. (laughs) The ambition for 4 million doses on that timeline was always incredibly optimistic, and that that would have put us on a timeline that was somewhere between Israel and the US in terms of the first 30 to 40 days. Mm. And Israel is the only country that's got even close to that sort of timeline. So the Prime Minister was talking about administering a first dose to around about 16% of the population in the first month. Now, the US did 5%, the UK did 6%, only Israel has got close, it did 31% the first month. 
But this all goes back to, to the fundamental issue, which is that Australia signed its deals six to eight months after most other countries. Now, the, the notion that w- there was not going to be a queue or that there was not going to be an issue or a supply concern was just kind of incredibly naive. I suspect the timeline it will, it will ex- rapidly accelerate during April and May, but I, I do think the October timeline is pretty unrealistic. Paul, we saw a pretty ugly blame game between the federal government and the state governments last week. How much the problem lies in that federal state relationship and the state administration versus what you've just talked about, which is us being behind on getting the deal done in the first place last year? If you go along and get your flu vaccine now, the states and territories deliver that. The feds obviously want to keep the COVID program for themselves, which I understand <laughs> politically, you want the credit for it, but you also have to take the blame for it if, if it's not working right. So they've built this incredibly complex program. In doing so, they're not even using the existing infrastructure for medicines and vaccines in Australia. So you've got pharmaceutical wholesalers in Australia who, who distribute PBS medicines and, and, and vaccines, and the federal government pays $200 million a year to support that infrastructure, and they're not even using it for this. They're doing something completely new that they've never done before. I have some sympathy with the states who have been given one or two days' notice that they're going to receive supply and they're not getting very much supply. Wow. So you've just told us that they botched the initial deal on vaccine supply. They were six to eight months behind other countries. You've also just told us that they have tried to basically create their own rollout administration model and failed you're saying it's a fail all round on the federal government's behalf? What I'm saying is that they've made it incredibly complicated. If you look at the experience in Israel, they, they went very hard. They, they built up the supply. They went very hard at vaccinating the vulnerable populations. And then within a month, it was just come one, come all. If you want to get a dose administered, we're going to administer a dose. Now, we can't do that because we don't have the supply. The other challenge is that, it's, that the government has built this very complex phased rollout but there's no supply going into the rollout. So 1A, for example, which are the 700,000 vulnerable people, it's going to take several months to, to administer vaccines to these people. And then you get into six, almost 7 million people in 1B, sort of people aged over 70. So I, I'm sure everyone is hearing reports of family members and friends who are struggling to get appointments. I just think they've overcomplicated it. Paul, going back to last year, we banked on two vaccinations, basically, AstraZeneca, which we can produce in Melbourne, and Pfizer. Was that ever going to be enough? There's Moderna, there's other vaccinations out there. We also had the University of Queensland working on one, and that fell over. So going back, and with the benefit of hindsight, how should have we gone about, I guess, securing those vaccines early on? And what should have we done when, say, something like the Queensland one fell over? Well, Australia limited its options upfront by refusing to adopt a vaccine no-fault compensation scheme. Now, it has indemnified the vaccine makers, but that's different to a no-fault compensation scheme. Johnson & Johnson and Moderna will not sell their vaccines to countries that don't have a no-fault compensation scheme. Now, we're kind of a standout here. New Zealand has one, Canada has one, the EU has one, the UK has one, the US has one. We don't have one. We automatically limited our options. What's that no-fault compensation scheme that you're talking about? So that means that the government would automatically compensate people who suffer adverse events uh, rather than having to go through the court system to 
attribute liability. Mm. The, the, the thing that makes vaccines unusual is that for the vast majority of people, you're administering a therapeutic intervention to a healthy person. You are going to get adverse events just because of the scale of the program. And most countries decide just to compensate people without having to send them into the, into the courts. Now, because uh, Australia doesn't have a no-fault compensation scheme for vaccines, Johnson & Johnson and Moderna will not sell their vaccines to this country. Mm. One other problem, of course, has been trade disputes. Now, the EU just weren't sending us vaccines we'd ordered for a while. So should have we foreseen that? And how can you handle that? Well, I don't. it's another thing that we shouldn't have been surprised about. You know, people have decried vaccine nationalism, but everyone's program is based on vaccine nationalism. So I would say to, say to, say to Australia, how would you feel if CSL started exporting these vaccines to other countries that they're making in Melbourne? So I, I do have some understanding of the EU's position because they're saying, well, hang on, we've got deals for these vaccines. Uh, we've funded their development and you're saying that you're going to export them somewhere else, we, would, we, I think, would do exactly the same thing. And as you've said, Paul, that means we've put a lot of eggs now in the local production basket with the CSL facility, but that's having problems as well. They were supposed to be up to a million doses a week by now in their production, but they're not. What's going on there? In order for Australia to hit the October timeline, we have to administer something in the vicinity of 200,000 doses a day every day for the next seven months. Now, at the moment, we're doing just under 100,000. The government has to be getting up to one and a half million doses a week from CSL. And and vaccine production is highly complex. This is basically a living thing. And you can have issues with it. Even if the supply really starts to flow from CSL, I think there are other issues with the administration, uh, the distribution administration of the vaccine, which makes that October timeline incredibly optimistic and probably unrealistic, I would say. Now, Paul, you talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine being the one we're producing here and the one most Australians will get. Now, one of my family members had it recently and they felt pretty unwell, like really unwell for the first day anyway. Now, that's better than getting COVID. We all know that. But it has created a bit of a tension amongst doctors and nurses here who some are rescheduling appointments if they're finding out they're getting that one, not Pfizer. They've been told not to do that. So does this sort of behaviour risk further delaying the rollout? And especially when that's the one most Australians will be getting? Look, feeling unwell after a vaccine is not unusual. You know, you can feel unwell after a flu vax, for example. The challenge here for the government is they've got to be absolutely transparent in all of these adverse events. There's always going to be a group in the community who are not going to want to be vaccinated, and that's their choice. Now, if they spread misinformation, that's another issue. But I just think we, we need to be transparent and open and communicate about the fact that we're immunising. The vast majority of people are going to be immunised. They're going to be healthy and they will experience some adverse events. The government just has to be open about that. Paul, a lot of the heat in this interview has been on the federal government, but what could the state governments be doing better and how could they contribute to, I guess, improving this rollout? Well, I think they've, they've got all the experience. I think New South Wales and other states are looking at constructing or, or, or putting together some mass inoculation clinics where, for when the supply really starts to come through. Mm. And I think that's a good idea. Pharmacy, I think, be good to involve pharmacy earlier, but they're now, they've now been pushed back by at least a month. 
I think the next 30 to 60 days are really critical. What the international experience shows in places like the UK and the US is that second month, second and third month, is where it really starts to accelerate based on supply. Now, they're three months ahead of us. They started their programs before the end of last year. They got supply early because they did the early deals. And that's it's 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 really is as simple as that. And then ultimately, it's a come one come all approach, which is what they're doing in Israel. Just come and get a vaccine. So based on that timeline, when could say the average thirty year old in Australia expect to receive both the vaccinations and be fully vaccinated? Possibly before the end of the year. <laughs> Hopefully. Possibly. So that was Paul Cross from Pharma Dispatch, Biotech Dispatch, and Health Dispatch. So, Annika, putting your federal politics hat on, which I love asking you to do, how damaging do you think this is going to be for the federal government? I actually don't think it'll be that damaging. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. Perhaps it should Mm. be. It does sound like they've really got a few questions to answer there. But for two main reasons. One, we don't have a huge number of cases at the moment. Now, as Paul suggested, when you do have heaps of cases in the community, you have people lining up saying, put this injection in me. We might struggle to actually encourage people to do it because we're in such a good situation here. Secondly, I just think people get confused when there's federal and state problems. We see it with health, we see it with housing. They don't really know who to blame, so they just blame politicians in general. And I think that tends to cover a lot of sins. Now, you'll hear politicians talk about this when there's a political scandal, a sex scandal or something like this. They say they don't blame the Liberal or Labor Party. They think we're all in on it. And I think in many ways, the way that we're responding to this vaccine rollout might actually affect all levels of government. Now, I'm not saying that's right, but that's how I see it playing out at the moment. Okay, so unless we end up having a massive COVID outbreak, you don't see the vaccine failure as an election-losing issue? Not at this stage. The government were trying to link themselves to it being a sort of Liberal Party policy. Now, that's no good. You know, this is something that they would have done no matter which government, which parliament. We have to help our people. This is the sort of policy you can't really politicise. The government were trying to do this to the start. at the start. They seem to have stopped doing that now, which makes me think they don't think it's going as well as it could. But given they put us in a pretty good position to start with, shutting those borders, and we haven't had the outbreaks we've seen in Europe and the US, I think they'll get away with it. And tomorrow on The Briefing, we hear a lot about uh, Russian and Chinese cyber attacks on Australia. But what about our hackers? Are they doing similar things in other countries? Listener.